I'm Rachel Tausenfein. Welcome to a special Marshall edition of Out of Order, a podcast by the German Marshall Fund of the United States. 2022 marks the 75th anniversary of the Marshall Plan. And to celebrate this, the German Marshall Fund of the United States, which is also turning 50, is looking at the Marshall Plan as a kind of blueprint that can be adapted for today's challenges. One such challenge is digital democracy. How do we get big tech and social media to work for democracy and not against it? And who are the important partners one would need to work with? I'm very lucky, I'm thrilled, actually, to be able to discuss these questions with one of the world's leading experts on digital democracy, someone who's also putting big ideas into practice. Audrey Tang became Taiwan's first digital minister in 2016, after a rather untraditional path to government. Audrey dropped out of school to become a software programmer, an entrepreneur. She then went to Silicon Valley for some time, and later returned to Taiwan to join the Sunflower Student Protest Movement in 2014, which led to a peaceful occupation of the parliament. In 2016, Audrey was asked to join the government as a minister without portfolio, the youngest ever and first non-binary minister in Taiwanese history. Minister Tang is one of the globe's leading thinkers and practitioners of digital democracy, and they represented Taiwan at the Summit for Democracy, a virtual summit hosted by the Biden administration in 2021. Audrey is a great thinker and communicator about these very complex issues, so I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation and learn a lot about what Taiwan is doing and how it can transfer to the rest of the world and what kind of blueprint we could use to improve digital democracy across the globe. Minister Tang, thank you very much for joining us. Hello, and good local time, everyone. Really happy to be here. As I said, you're Taiwan's first digital minister. And I've heard you say in interviews before that you're inventing digital democracy as you go. But you're actually not the only one doing that, right? Everyone is sort of trying to invent digital democracy right now uh, Mm -hmm. because the technology arrived sort of before the regulations, before government got its head around the technology. And so now we're trying to catch up. But Taiwan seems to be doing better than most. We saw this in the COVID crisis, but I think it's bigger than that. There's a lot of success in sort of your tools and your practices with digital democracy. So I want to jump right into a couple examples that I think are really helpful. Mm -hmm. Disinformation is a really big problem that we have in terms of uh, digital democracy Mm -hmm. in the public space of communication. Mm -hmm. It's also a virus, a pandemic too. Uh, The WHO call it the infodemic. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's Mm -hmm. a infodemic. That's, that's very accurate. So um, one of the things, um, you know, we have this problem of social media not connecting us really, but dividing us, mm-hmm. radicalizing people and putting them in, in different realities. You've talked mm-hmm. about purpose-seeking social media and a platform mm-hmm. in particular called PTT. Can you explain mm-hmm. to us what PTT is, why it's a better kind of social media, and also I think it was part of your COVID response. So can mm-hmm. you talk specifically about mm-hmm. what role it played in the COVID response? Sure. Uh, PTT is a uh, social sector. Uh, I would say it's a civic infrastructure. It's sometimes compared to Reddit in that it has forums and self-governing uh, moderators and so on. But the main difference is that it has no shareholders. It has no advertisers either. It exists for more than 26 years now of the Taiwan Academic Network, started and remains actually as a student pet project in first the National Taiwan University, but now um, pretty much everyone uh, is on board. And so uh, the idea of PTT 
is exactly like a campus in an analog world, but turned into digital world equivalent. So people seek the purpose of academic discussions, sometimes for fun also, but never uh, for selling advertisements uh, and never for uh, seeking profits. It has no profit motive at all. Uh, and so because of that, around the turn of the year, uh, at the last day of 2019, it was Dr. Li Wenliang's message that said, and I quote, uh, there's seven new SARS cases in the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan, end of quote, uh, that got reposted on PTT. Now, I'm sure that it's reposted on all sorts of other social media as well around the world, but only this pro-social corner of social media world rather than some other anti-social corner of social media. Um, elicited the collective intelligence. People who specialize in all sorts of disciplines look at that message, triaged it. And then just 24 hours afterward, the first day of 2020, we started health inspections for all flight passengers coming in from Wuhan to Taiwan. So this demonstrates two very important things about digital democracy. One is a higher bandwidth. Instead of just a ballot with like 12 choices or something, uh, people can contribute uh, with the full analysis and back and forth and so on in a pro-social uh, safe space. Space. And the second thing is the latency, right? You don't have to wait for four years or a quarter or even a week. Uh, usually when the collective intelligence service is really good innovation from the social sector, the public sector can adopt it within just 24 hours. Yeah, that is a really interesting, this role as a kind of early warning. Have you mm -hmm. had issues with, um, I don't know, bands of actors kind of mm -hmm. getting on PTT and trying to derail information, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of troll mm -hmm. farms and this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Troll control is uh, an art. And uh, we make sure that the trolls, when they play the game of attrition when it comes to people's attention and so on, uh, they end up consuming their own time and not the moderator's time, And which is why the self-governing nature of PTT is so important. For example, when you're going to register a new account on PTT, uh, you have to first send a SMS from a local phone number in Taiwan to this you know, number with you paying the cost uh, of the SMS. It's just um, you know, a few cents, but anyway. Uh, so it means that the PTT moderators do not spend any money, uh, but we do have a pretty robust identity system because if you try to get 5,000 fake SIM cards, the anti-money laundering office will be after you very quickly. Right? So, so we, we kind of offset the threat of astroturfing and trolling and so on uh, by making an identity system that costs nothing to the moderators. And it goes beyond this, of course. It's also uh, like you have to log in at certain times and only counts one per day. Uh, you have to contribute to the post in a way that is more upvoted and downvoted and so in order to gain more voice at the forum. Okay. The mm -hmm. other aspect of this is, you know, what you put out there to counter the wrong information. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard you in interviews talk about humor over rumor, and we're mm -hmm. going to put some notes in the, uh, in the show notes mm -hmm. about that, a links to mm -hmm. you talking about that. But you also talked about something else, another tactic mm -hmm. that I think you called notice and public notice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So can you explain that? Sure, very easily. So if you have received a spam email, then you know what notice and public notice is. Because people kind of flag incoming email as spam knowing that it provides a signature, right, a signal to spam house or some international networks that analyze the origin of those emails. So instead of a lockdown or a shutdown of the internet access rights, which we don't do in Taiwan, uh, what we did is that we let all the email providers notice that there's some spam activities going on. And when this is going on, then the next incoming spam from that origin matching that thing 
fingerprint, it still lands in your email account, but it goes into the junk mail folder. And it carries a public notice that we think this is probably spam. But if it's not, tell us, right? Uh, and so applying that to this information, which is like spam that goes viral, uh, it, it, it's the same thing. Uh, and so when people receive even on end-to-end -end encrypted channels uh, in Taiwan, it's called Line. It's very much the same as WhatsApp or Signal or whatever. Then the Line interface, you can long press a message and then flag this as spam, basically, or scam or disinformation. Uh, and as sufficient number of people flag that, uh, we know then which virus strands are getting viral uh, and uh, even the, the basic reproduction number, right? So instead of focusing on whatever random um, spams uh, of the day, the fact checkers, the uh, media competence classes, even uh, the middle school students and so on doing their homework can focus on actual messages that are going viral that may or may not be disinformation. And once the fact checkers, both amateur and professional ones, uh, got into this investigative reporting uh, mode uh, and to uh, uncover maybe it's uh, factually true, but it's very misleading, it's out of context and things like that, then that signal is propagated to the international uh, fact-checking network, the IFCN. And from there, uh, that informs all the social media platforms. And the next time you see uh, this piece of disinformation, you will see a public notice that say this is sponsored by some uh, you know, operator, uh, information operator. Uh, and uh, once you want to share it, there will also be a very clear signal uh, that says uh, whatever you just share it into your chat room group, a automated bot uh, just put a public notice saying, but you might also want to consult this fact checking reports. Great. This is actually a good bridge. So this tool, this public notice tool, you know, it's kind of like the different fact checking um, mm -hmm. things are all kinds of different forms of it. Or PTT. I mean, the next question is, how easy is it to scale these things beyond Taiwan? Mm -hmm. You know well, the United States already, pretty well, right? So, yeah, yeah. so think about but, that. But we didn't come up with the international fact-checking. <laughs> right? I think it's the Pointer Institute. Uh, and uh, certainly we didn't come up with the idea of dial-up BBS. That's, I think, from FidoNet or something. So uh, it, it starts uh, with a international community. And for countering spam, I mean, spam house and so on, they're all international uh, networks and usually in democratic countries because... Otherwise, you know, the regime may prefer a lockdown instead, which uh, obviates the needs of fact-checking, right? So uh, in the democratic um, jurisdictions that really want the uh, social sector, the media sector to gain legitimacy and the public sector do not feel threatened by it too much, uh, then we will see the public investments on this sort of public infrastructure. Wikipedia is another very good example. Many jurisdictions around the world uh, foster their local Wikipedia um, teams and also, you know, open source teams in general, open access teams. But we don't say, oh, uh, our contribution can only be used within our jurisdiction. Of course, everything on Wikipedia, on GitHub or anything is useful to the entire world. So you mentioned investment, right? The jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So let's just say the United mm -hmm. States in this case has to be mm -hmm. willing to invest in some of the basic tools and technologies. In the future of the internet. <laughs> in the future of the internet. So where do they need to start, for mm -hmm. example, to make... Mm -hmm. Any of these uh -huh. things you've been talking about, what are the first steps that aren't happening mm -hmm. or maybe are not happening enough? Yeah, I, I think at the moment, uh, the feeling that I got is that for town halls, for deliberative conversations and so on, people in some other democracies, including uh, the U.S., uh, is kind of forced to use private sector infrastructure. 
and trying to have a town hall discussion with your mayor on, let's just say, Facebook, uh, is just like having a real-time town hall in the analog world in a nightclub. Uh, and so, like, people have to shout to get heard because the music is very loud and there's addictive drinks being served and private bouncers and smoke fuel and I can go on. Uh, and so, I mean, you can talk about politics, I guess, in a nightclub, but it's not the district designed to do that. It's an entertainment sector. And don't get me wrong, I have my utmost respect for the entertainment sector and cute cat pictures, but uh, I do think that we need digital equivalent to university campuses like the PTT, the digital equivalent to town halls like the join platform in Taiwan, the digital equivalent of public parks, public libraries like Wikipedia and so on. So find whatever your local government is funding in the analog space and then fund the digital equivalent of this. Yeah, my colleague Karen Kornblow, she talks about a sort of digital uh, PBS, for example, Mm -hmm. um, as along these lines. And so, okay, there's the investment aspect. Beyond that, what would you say have been some of the biggest challenges to making your ideas mm-hmm. in terms of digital democracy work in Taiwan? And and what challenges do you see beyond Taiwan? If you were, you know, if mm-hmm. you were given the power to make these ideas happen, what do you think the biggest challenges are beyond investment, which we already mentioned? Yeah, there, there's really this dynamic of over-centralization solves everything. Like if just the state or a certain multinational company can have all the data, uh, then they can make the most optimal choices uh, on paper clips or something. So that's one challenge, right? And the other challenge is that, oh, let's just assume that the world is a hostile place and we rely on cryptography uh, to make sure that individuals can uh, freely associate or even you know transact and form new forms of uh, autonomous organizations completely ignoring the social institutions that exists, right? Let's disrupt uh, those institutions. That That's another uh, side of things. Now, these two are, of course, not the same, but they share the kind of optimizing mindset, like taking one value, uh, it could be GDP or whatever, uh, and then try to grow that in excess uh, and then uh, sacrificing whatever need to be sacrificed because that was not measured. Uh, And so digital democracy to me is the third uh, way of doing things that says let's respect existing institutions, but ask for respect so that we can also grow new forms of decision making, new forms of uh, associations and so on, but purely in a way that brings the technology to the people rather than asking people to adapt their norms to fit the technologists. So it's fundamentally a more humble approach. Now, obviously, uh, encountering pandemic, this works very, very well in terms of, you know, casualty per million. Taiwan is some of the lowest. And then we're able to keep the economy growing because of that. But if you uh, look at, uh, especially around Indo-Pacific, there's still a very strong sentiment saying, yeah, maybe we should centralize more power <laughs> to, to solve public issues in the name of, you know, collectivist uh, spirits. Uh, and that's a challenge in this region. We have really to demonstrate even to the authorities in the more authoritarian flavored uh, jurisdictions that actually fostering the social sector, the consumer rights, the co-ops, the social entrepreneurs is of a net benefit to you as well, instead of subscribing to a particularly optimizing technology. It sounds like a sort of modified anarchy, because I know in the past you've called yourself a, mm-hmm. an anarchist, but it's no, 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 partial no, no. respect. Conservative anarchist. Ah, conservative. So that's the <laughs> right, respect I, for institutions, but also... <laughs> 
open yeah, them up. Uh, and, and I basically uh, express that as a way uh, to say that I'm a Taoist. I'm really a Taoist uh, since a child in a way that doesn't sound overtly religious because Taoism <laughs> uh, as a thought, uh, as a tradition, is a very long tradition. But sometimes people also uh, say, oh, so you're a folk Taoist and you, uh, you know, uh, perform such rituals. Uh, and so on, but that I don't do that, right? So a, a, a uh, philosophical Taoism need a bridge and I sometimes say oh, it's like um, anarchism but a very early sort uh, and conservative in the sense that it doesn't disrupt any existing institutions just go with the flow in a way that's more natural that fosters more creativity. Mm, interesting. You've talked as well about alignment and accountability as being sort of key features to make tech work mm -hmm. for democracy. Mm -hmm. So what kind of alignments do you mean and what mm -hmm. kind of accountability? I mean, you've touched on a few, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, uh, so I use these two terms in reference to AI as assistive intelligence. And I say AI is assistive if it's aligned and accountable, and it's authoritarian if it's not. So, uh, for example, this eyeglass is a assistive technology, um, and it's aligned because it serves my best interest. I want to look at you uh, in a higher resolution, right? Uh, and so th this is aligned. Uh, but if this iCloud start push notification of uh, advertisement that would take 10 seconds to close, then it's not aligned uh, with my vision literally anymore. Uh, and it's very bad optics, uh, pun intended. Uh, and so uh, that is the alignment part that it has to serve the best interest of the person treating them as a fellow citizen, not as a subject or as a user in a uh, drug industry sense. Uh, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is accountability, meaning that if there is bias uh, and I suddenly see things in a blurry way, I can fix it myself or I can bring it to the person down the street uh, and they can repair it for me. Uh, and neither one of uh, us need to reverse engineer and uh, do something criminal uh, or pay three million dollars in and sign NDA for a license fee uh, and things like that. So it's accountable in a sense that when things go wrong, whatever communities deploying these technologies have the last word in remixing these open innovations for the betterment for the norm of the community instead of the other way around. So a final kind of pair of really big questions, uh, because mm -hmm. as you know, I've invited you here to sort of launch our discussions around the anniversary of the Marshall Plan yes. with the idea of using that blueprint to solve the problems of today and tomorrow, which I think you're mm -hmm. in the process of doing in any case. Mm -hmm. And so the part that everyone knows about the Marshall Plan is that it was a huge amount of money. It was a very big aid package that in today's money is something like $130 billion. So um, you were at the Summit for Democracies, and this is you know part of what people were talking about. You know, how do we make uh, tech work for democracy? How do we strengthen our democracies in general? So if you had to narrow down the top two or three investments that we would need to make globally, right, if they said uh, – Audrey Tang, you are now Marshall. Draft a plan, and you have one hundred and thirty billion dollars. Where do you start with the investments? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I would say that the two most important things are about the digital equivalent of human right, and that's the personal liberty, freedom thing. Uh, so, technologies that enhance 
the human rights situation instead of kind of you have to trade away some of your rights to assemble and so on just by using the technology. What I have in mind is, for example, the end-to-end or at least uh, fully encrypted ways for people to associate without a single intermediary that can shut down the access uh, at any given time. Things that is resilient, that's multimodal, uh, and that allows information to flow both ways. And in certain geopolitical events, we've seen the importance of such resilience uh, in, in light of the kind of analog world threats to human rights. Uh, and we need the journalists on the ground and pretty much anyone uh, in the ground to use the digital rights to let the world know what's happening and let the world help as well. So that's the fundamental layer. Now, uh, with that in mind, I would also say that once we have uh, this basic, let's call it the operation system of human rights uh, with all the assembly and transaction access and personal identity and so on firmly in place, we need to build some applications upon that operating system. And uh, applications would be about deliberation, would uh, be about co-creation, making compromises and things like that, and increase the bandwidth of democracy and also reduce the latency of democracy. So I see uh, Summit for Democracies as just advancing what we understand as democracy. So it's no longer just about voting or polling. Um, it's about reaching very quickly a good enough consensus on whatever that is affecting people of the same community, but physically they may be all across the world. So people who, for example, uh, are affected by certain disinformation campaigns, no matter where they are, because of their culture, because of their close contact with each other on information space. And this will be one of those applications to co-create solutions, antidotes, a viral vaccine, if you will, of humor over rumor across jurisdictions. So that would be one of the applications. Uh, some other applications would be listening at scale so that on emerging issues like back in 2015, we talk about the Uber issue and we got uh, a very firm set of good enough consensus. But at the time, it was not an international network of democracies. So our application only runs in the Taiwan jurisdiction and we, we very successfully uh, regulated Uber. So it's now a legal taxi and everything. But it doesn't automatically solve similar issues anywhere else uh, on the planet. Right. And, and the pandemic uh, showed us uh, like the uh, European Union uh, digital certificates of uh, the vaccination. Uh, it showed that once we agree on some very basic protocols, we can turn local solutions into global ones because data and algorithms free across borders, they flow very easily. So we need to identify, in addition to public health and I guess public mental health, uh, other <laughs> international challenges that can be resolved in a democratic fashion. And that's what I mean by democracy as an application on top of the human rights as a operating system. And this then, as you mentioned, Taiwan developed the tech, but then it doesn't automatically transfer. So one would need some mm -hmm. kind of body of democracies. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's connected to the United Nations. Mm -hmm. Maybe it has to be separate mm -hmm. where, uh, and maybe it's yeah. this, you know, like a tech council mm -hmm. of democracies mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. these things get transferred. Yeah, uh, so it would be the like the inter in the internet. Right. We had nets before the internet. I talk about dial up BBS, but the internet was not a, a magic thing that started out of nowhere. Right? The internet is literally existing networks, but all of them agreed on a kind of peering protocol modeled after the early ARPANET. 
so that uh, those uh, existing networks, uh, once they adopted the internet protocol, they don't have to do anything else in order to benefit uh, from this network of democratic nodes. And that's uh, internet governance as we know it today. And so we need similar things because the internet, the earlier layers did not include the kind of human rights or the democratic applications in mind uh, back when internet first started. So we need to add more layers uh, to the internet, but fundamentally it's the same vision as the internet. Interesting. Finally, and it's related to this, um, mm -hmm. you've talked about co-creation and the importance mm -hmm. of sort of government and NGOs mm -hmm. and the public and mm -hmm. I guess also the private creating together. Mm -hmm. What other partnerships, because this is again sticking in the framework of the Marshall Plan that um, sort mm -hmm. of forced Europeans to work together. So beyond mm -hmm. public-private and government and public partnerships, are there particular mm -hmm. jurisdictions, countries that would need to be on board to make this really work? What are the essential mm -hmm. partnerships here? I believe I do see the largest internet companies as co-governors in many things. So those jurisdictions, uh, de facto jurisdictions, uh, need to be on board because they also have a pretty large role to, to play if we are to establish a, for example, privacy-enhancing norm. So uh, you mean if, like Google, uh, Facebook, or Meta? Yeah, yeah, and so when uh, Apple, uh, yeah. which I used to work with, right? <laughs> so, and the point is that once the private sector amplifies those social sector norms, it becomes kind of automatic for the public sector across the world to go with the path of least resistance because that's just what everybody else do just by using the public cloud, uh, but with, say, homomorphic encryption that enables the computational providers to see nothing about the raw data, say, if everyone does that, and then it will raise the bar, so to speak. So that uh, across public sectors, it will become something like a faux pas if you still give the raw data to the public cloud. And this is just one example. And so if the private sector can get on board with those social sector international organization uh, partners and say, yeah, we're, we're willing to establish the norm together. And then we can uh, really do some good things together. That's one. And the other is that of companies, uh, there are a new sort of companies, I guess. And I have in mind like the Ethereum community and communities that's about open distributed shared ledgers have their own governing protocols. They are a jurisdiction of sorts. But instead of determining their policies through data, as some assistive intelligence-based companies do, they determine that through code. And the code is very intentional because in their world, code is law and it's physical law, right? It defines what's possible and what's not possible. So if we get both the data-based innovators and the code-based innovators on board and say, both data and code need to work first with the norm and the norm determines the code and the data and that will then make it much easier across jurisdictions to start to build a kind of uh, future of internet that i just described great thank you very much that's uh i think you've laid out a very good plan for us to start working on as you continue to work on it uh, in taiwan thank you very much for this conversation mm -hmm. okay thank you for more of this Marshall Plan anniversary content and how the plan can be a blueprint for today and tomorrow's challenges, please check out the website of the German Marshall Fund, www.gmfus.org. <laughs>